Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engagement relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shi. And this is Jill Wine-Banks. And today's Jill's pin is in honor of George Floyd, something that's very relevant to our discussion today about the Department of Justice's report about what went wrong in Minnesota. It's no surprise that there are deep systemic issues with our policing system. We've seen it countless times over the last several years, from the brutal killing of George Floyd to Tyree Nichols, Brianna Taylor, and many others. And now we have a new report by the Department of Justice, like Jill mentioned, finding that the, that the Minneapolis Police Department routinely violated multiple civil rights, verifying what led to protests after George Floyd's murder. The call for reform is justifiably getting louder now, and that's why uh, for this episode of iGen Politics, we are going to talk about the disturbing new DOJ report and how we can and should move forward with police reform. And of course, we have the perfect guest to do that with us today. We are joined by Professor Paul Butler. Paul teaches at Georgetown Law School and is an MSNBC legal analyst. He's also the author of Chokehold, Policing Black Men something that is completely relevant to our topic today. It was also one of the 50 best nonfiction books of 2017, according to the Washington Post. And as I said, it's really related to our conversation today. Previously, Paul was a federal prosecutor in the Department of Justice. And by the way, he was born in Chicago, which is of course where Victor and I are both from. So welcome fellow Chicagoan. Uh, I'm also proud to say that I consider Paul a friend, and I'm very delighted that you're here today. Thank you for joining us, Paul. It's great to be here, and I not only consider Jill a friend, but like most lawyers, an icon. You're a personal (laughs) hero to me, Jill. You inspired so many people to go into uh, the kind of work that I did at the Department of Justice, going after public corruption. You've inspired legions of of women, people of color. So it's an honor to be here with you. Thank you. That is just, you're going to make me cry. Goodness (laughs) gracious. Okay, let's get to the subject. Go ahead, Victor. Yeah, well, so, I mean, about a week and a half ago, Merrick Garland released this report about police practices in Minneapolis. And I'm wondering if you can first walk us through its biggest points that our audience should know of. Sure. The report starkly says that George Floyd murder was enabled by the policies and practices of the Minneapolis Police Department. What the cops did to George Floyd, they've done to many other people. So, Victor, there's a horrific accounting of officers violating their badge. A cop drew his gun on a kid who he thought was stealing a $5 burrito. Uh, a Christmas tree at a station in a black neighborhood was decorated with cups from a fried chicken restaurant and menthol cigarettes. Uh, officers put a woman who was suffering a diabetic episode in a straight jacket. When you read the report, you understand why the city of Minneapolis has paid more than $70 million in police misconduct settlements. And, and that's just in the last five years. And so basically, to summarize it, it shows a long and continuous deep pattern of bias, excessive force. It's systemic. It's not just a one-off in a, you know, that happened to come to public attention with the George Floyd murder. Um, is there something that is endemic to police forces in general or just in Minnesota 
Is it all law enforcement? What, you know, you've studied this. Uh, your book deals with this. What do you think? So it's certainly not just Minneapolis. Jill, think of three different problems. These are three different issues that drive police misconduct. One is bad apple cops. The other is just the police culture. And the third is what the law allows. So Derek Chauvin might be the poster child for bad apple cops. And the Minneapolis report talks about some of the warning signs. He had 18 complaints on his official record, and only two of those resulted in any disciplinary action. A lot of times, bad apple cops are protected by police unions. Happy to talk more about that because, unfortunately, these organizations have stood in the way of reform and the necessary transformation. But I also mentioned a problem of police culture. So President Obama's commission on 21st century policing said that too many officers view their relationship to the community as us against them. It's a warrior culture. And that attitude is reinforced by some police training programs that exaggerate the danger of police, uh, routine police work. So the commission for 21st century policing started by President Obama recommended a guardian culture instead. And if you think about it, the kind of person who applies for a job as a guardian, she's got a whole different skill set and values and career objectives than somebody who wants to be a warrior. And then the third, and I think this is big issue, is what we sometimes call lawful but awful. So these are things that are legal, but are drivers of police violence. So lawful but awful includes something called pretextual stops. So the Supreme Court said that as long as the police have a legitimate reason for stopping you, as long as it's objectively a crime or an infraction, they could stop you. It doesn't matter if that's not their real objective. And this came up in a case called Wren, in which the Supreme Court had pulled over, I'm sorry, the Supreme Court, the police had pulled over a young black man for a bunch of traffic infractions, including something that I didn't even know was an infraction, waiting too long at a stop sign. <laughs> oh. So the issue before the court was, could they really stop them if they really didn't care about the fact that he was waiting too long at a stop sign, they really just wanted to pull him over to see what he could see. The court said that that was perfectly constitutional, that you can be pulled over, stopped for anything. It doesn't matter what the subjective reason the cop has. And, and Victor and Jill, just let me tell you a quick story to illustrate how much power that one case gives the police. I have a police buddy who comes to my criminal law class at Georgetown, and he invites the students to go on a ride along where one or two will sit in the back of his squad car and just see what it's like to patrol the streets of DC. And to demonstrate how much power this case Wren gives him to stop people, he plays a game with the students called Stop That Car. 
So he tells the student to point to any car and he'll stop. So the student might say, how about that white Camry over there? He's a good cop. He waits until he has a legal reason, but he says he can follow any driver on the street three or four minutes, three or four blocks, and find a legal reason to stop him. He can stop anybody who's driving. So cases like that, what's lawful but awful, enable practices like excessive force, like racial profiling. So all of these are drivers uh, of the kind of police violence and misconduct and police violating their badges that we've seen so many times. So I have a follow-up question for you, but I have to tell my own story based on what you were just saying. If you want to hear about a crime you never heard about or a ticketable offense, I got ticketed for unlawful opening of my door when I was parked in front of my house. How's that for a ticket? I scared (laughs) the policeman when I opened my door. Okay, so, all right. But my my serious follow-up question um, is, you know, from what you're saying about this Wren case, it concerns me because it's being used, obviously, in a racial profiling sense. They aren't, well, okay, I am a white woman who got ticketed for unlawful opening my door, but generally speaking, it's not me they're pulling over. And so it concerns me that they have the power to just randomly do that. Am I right in saying that that leads to uh, more people of color being pulled over than people like me? Uh, You're absolutely right. So we can think about lawful but awful in the context of what the Justice Department found was going on in Minneapolis, that the police routinely discriminate against Black and Native American people. Native Americans are eight times more likely to be stopped by the Minneapolis police than white people are. Blacks are seven times more likely. And Jill, you're right that this would not have come as a surprise to anybody who follows civil rights in this country every single time. The Department of Justice does a study like this of a local police department. They find that police excessively use these superpowers to use violence, superpowers to racially profile. Police selectively use these powers against Black people, against Brown people, against Native people. Wow. So, you know, you study this issue and I'm, I'm wondering, um, as someone who does study this area, what was the original purpose of policing and how different or similar is it now um, compared to its initial inception? Uh, such a great question, Victor, because sometimes people think that policing has been around forever and it, it's actually a relatively modern invention. So urban policing that is large, organized paramilitary-like forces started not long after the Civil War. And a lot of people have noted that the model was slave patrols, again, Mm -hmm. organized units that were designed uh, during enslavement to round up uh, people who were enslaved who had tried to gain their freedom. So this model was imported to some big cities at first, like New York and and like our hometown of Chicago. And so we really had the development of professional police departments 
in, in the early uh, 1900s. And sometimes people get romantic. They wax nostalgic about things being better back in the day. But as far as Black people are concerned, there's never for one moment in American history been peace between the between the police and black people. So almost from the inception of modern policing right up until 2023, uh, African-Americans have complained about excessive force, about being arrested and prosecuted in situations in which that doesn't happen to white people. And so many stories uh, that I have growing up for in, in, in our hometown. So my mom, she's sometimes she doesn't like when I tell this story because she's an old school mom. So back in the day, uh, when I acted up, she would give me a spanking. <laughs> That's what they did back then. <laughs> they and did. Once I got a spanking because I have a smart mouth. <laughs> and, <laughs> I'd mock and a smart mouth. brain. <laughs> well, I, I use that mouth, not so much the brain, to mouth out to the police. <laughs> and this Ooh. is... In a time, especially where you have to be really careful, I was maybe eight or nine, riding my bike to the library, the public library, which which was in the white neighborhood, literally crossed the tracks from where I lived on the south side. And when I crossed those proverbial tracks, a cop car pulls up alongside me, a white officer rolls his window down and asks, was that my bike? Uh, oh. I said, yes, officer, is, is that your car? And then oh. I sped away. Oh. So when, when I got home, you know, I was coming, I told my mom what I said. Uh, my mom, who, who both marched with Martin, my mom, who, who took it to the streets with Malcolm. And, and this was in Chicago, which, yeah. again, both of you, my homies, know uh, was described as uh, by Martin Luther King as one of the most segregated cities he'd ever yeah. seen. He said it was more segregated than Birmingham. So wow. my mom was like, don't I know what happens to black boys who talk to the police like that? And, and she was right. It turned out to be one of those spankings when the, the, the parent cries as much as the, the yeah. kid. But we didn't know this at the time, but literally at this time, the Chicago Police Department were operating an off-site where oh. they took Black men and tortured them in order to extract confessions from them. They would do things like uh, pour soda up their noses. They would attach electrodes to their Genitals. This is all documented. Uh, the city of Chicago has now paid out more than $75 million to mm -hmm. people who were subject to that kind of torture from the police. So uh, a tough lesson from my mom, an important lesson for me. It's It always hurts when I hear stories like that. It's, it's incredible. And yet I know it's true. Uh, and our police force has had a long history of corruption and is of course under consent decree um, yeah. for the same reasons. And and basically, I think the DOJ pointed out some of the things you mentioned. It said excessive force was one of the issues that was violated. Racial bias was shown toward 
blacks and Native Americans, that there was punishment of um, protesters and journalists, and discrimination against people with behavioral disabilities. And so the question is whether this is internal bias that's not even recognized or what we can do about these manifestations uh, in each of these categories of violation. How common is it? What, what are the solutions? What can we do to stop this? So when there are systemic problems of police misconduct, the United States Justice Department can enter into a consent agreement, and that requires federal oversight. And often there's a long list of improvements. So the Trump administration basically rejected consent decrees, but they've come roaring back in Mayor Garland's Justice Department. Uh, we've got consent decrees in Baltimore, uh, Seattle, uh, Minneapolis will now be encouraged by its lawyers to enter into one based on these findings uh, from the Justice Department. So these agreements can help reduce police misconduct. They're expensive. Uh, they can take a long time. Yeah. Uh, the one in Los Angeles took 12 years. And sometimes when the feds leave, the police departments backslide. But the important point is that at least in the short term, they work. And what that means is they literally save lives. So in Baltimore, uh, after Freddie Gray died in police custody, uh, the department entered into a comprehensive consent agreement with the Justice Department. How comprehensive? 227 pages of things that the Baltimore Police Department had to do. Last year, police shootings were down by 80%. Wow. It just goes to show it does work. Yeah. Yeah. And hopefully they learn a lesson in the process so that it doesn't backslide. Um, how common is backsliding? Um, it's very common. Unfortunately, sometimes enabled by Republican administrations. So I mentioned the success in Baltimore, uh, but when President Trump assumed office, his Justice Department uh, tried to get Baltimore out of that deal. Uh, the Trump Justice Department wanted to say that Baltimore had done everything they needed to do and things were all good. The judge, the federal judge, disagreed with that and, and said that the consent decree had to remain because Baltimore the police there still weren't living up to their responsibility to, to serve and protect. And, and I specifically said Republican and not Trump, because this isn't one of those things where Trump was except, exceptional in. Uh, pretty much every Republican who's run for office has campaigned against what they call federal control of local police departments. Uh, they don't like that, even though now we've got lots of evidence of success. And I think it's so important to look at the data when we talk about reform of our criminal legal system. We used to talk so much about getting tough on crime 
And that led to all these emotional policies that were race-based and anxious and just didn't work. So criminal legal reform now, uh, the mantra is smart on crime, calling for evidence-based approaches. And, and Jill and Victor, when we look at the evidence, uh, consent decrees work. So when, when you look at this Minnesota report, it took from um, May 25th, 2020, all the way until June 2023. I'm wondering, why does it take so long for each DOJ investigation? How often is it that we see reports like the one that we saw um, from Minneapolis? Uh, it, it takes a long time because they're very comprehensive. Uh, <laughs> Jill and I spend so much time talking about grand juries in the context of yeah. Uh, Donald Trump and his cronies. And everybody knows that those investigations have taken a long time, in part because what grand juries do, in addition to uh, charge people with crimes, is actually investigate. And, and so what the Department of Justice is doing at this point, usually without a grand jury, is also an investigation. It's very comprehensive because uh, they're not trying to indict anybody, but they are preparing to go to trial because what they say to these police departments after they gather all this evidence, all this data that shows that these departments are violating people's civil rights, uh, they say, we need you to enter into this agreement. And if you don't, we're going to sue you. And the carrot is you don't get sued. The stick is if you don't enter into the deal, uh, you're going to get your butt kicked in court. So it takes that long to get that kind of evidence. What I like about what the department does is they reach out to all of the stakeholders in the yeah. community, uh, community organizations, uh, families that have lost members to police violence, uh, families that are very concerned about crime and, and need uh, a public safety intervention from the government, uh, but don't need it the way that the police often do it. Sometimes it gets pitted as people who are concerned about crime versus people who are concerned about wanting the police to do right. Well, guess what? You can have Safe communities, you can control crime at the same time that the police serve and protect everybody fairly. Sounds uh, like something that is absolutely achievable and people should stop thinking that it isn't. But I, I'm wondering at this point, when we look at how the reforms get made, first of all, let's look at what's going to happen in Minnesota. You have the report, you're suggesting that the next step would be that they agree to a consent decree rather than getting sued. Um, is that going to happen? And do we have a problem when it takes three years to get to what seemed obvious to begin with? Um, if it takes three years, it means the police are operating as they were for three additional years and that other people are being killed or hurt or treated poorly as a result during those three years. So. What, what's the answer there? Yeah, it's such a great point. So 
the good news in Minneapolis is that it has a new police chief who has experience overseeing consent decrees. So I don't think he's going to try to fight this. I hope that he will try to work with the Department of Justice. Again, a, a lot of people wouldn't like uh, some overseer coming in and, and telling you how to do your job. And, and police culture is especially resistant uh, to this kind of oversight. But the good news here is I tell all tell people all the time that the mayor and the local police chief have a lot more say over how policing works in your community than the president of the United States or the attorney general of the United States. Typically, the mayor chooses the chief, and especially in cities and uh, like Chicago, like Los Angeles, uh, the voters have been saying that they want reform, and mayors have been responsive to that by selecting police chiefs who, who get it. Uh, maybe they wouldn't describe themselves as woke, uh, but they certainly understand that there's been this, this tragedy, uh, this failure to live up to equal justice under the law, that police have selectively used violence um, against communities of color and that they need to do better. And so now in a bunch of cities, we've got uh, officers uh, who come in uh, with a, a different point of view, officers who come in uh, knowing that part of their job is about changing perceptions of police. So I'm wondering, given that, um, at this point, should we even be relying on police departments to create reform, or um, is this something state legislatures and Congress should be addressing instead? It, it, it's got to be, at some point, a federal issue. Yeah, We've got 18,000 different police departments in this country. Wow. And what that means is that we have 18,000 different ways of policing. Uh, there's federal rules about what can go into a can of tuna fish. There's no mandatory federal rules about who can become an officer, about the kind of training and competency people need, even though these are individuals walking around with a license to kill. Right. No mandatory federal rules at all. Uh, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act uh, was an attempt uh, by Congress to impose uh, some common sense federal requirements. But because of the reluctance of the Republicans in Congress to support this bill, it, it failed. So yeah. there is, it did pass. It, it passed the House, just to be House. clear, and then got stymied in the Senate. Um, right. Exactly so, right. Yeah. I mean, just, just for, as a, maybe a quick refresher for our audience, um, like we said, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act is um, kind of the preeminent, I guess, legislation that's waiting to be passed. What would that do? And, and we mentioned, I guess, why it's not in law. But what do you think it will take to get it over the finish line? Um, it, it would take a, a different Congress and it would take a, a different politics than the one we have now where uh, there's a lot of 
racialized anxiety uh, about crime and about public safety. Yeah. And unfortunately, we have the Democrats often running scared on this issue and the Republicans exploiting it. So in part to get the kind of federal involvement that we need on this issue, it's going to take a real sea change in, in our politics. And we saw some of that uh, in 2020. Again, Jill and I do so much talking about January 6, 2020. Uh, I like to think about June 6, 2020. Mm. Uh, on June 6, 2020, that was about two weeks after the murder of George Floyd, on June 6, 2020, the New York Times reported there was the greatest social justice movement in the history of our country. Wow. There were demonstrations in support of Black lives in 550 different cities, uh, somewhere between 5 and 15 percent of Americans report participating in some kind of action uh, responding to the murder of George Floyd. There's never been any social justice movement in our history uh, that's had that kind of reach. And, and so when I say it takes a, a sea change in politics uh, to create the kind of transformation of policing that we desperately need, uh, I'm hoping that we're seeing the beginning of that sea change. Yeah. If you could pick just one or two or three points, either from George Floyd, justice and policing, or just from your own research from other possible uh, legislations, what would they be? What would be the three most important changes that we should be fighting to have our police forces make? And, and I just want to say one thing, which is, uh, you know, I've worked with law enforcement for a lot of my career. I support law enforcement. This is not I don't want anyone to listen to the show and think that we are anti-police. I believe we need the police. They protect us. There are bad apples and there is some systemic um, problems that need to be solved. So I'm just trying to focus on what do we do to solve what are apparent problems? That's a great question and an important question. So you asked for three. One is more criminal prosecutions of bad apple cops. Before George Floyd, there was no accountability uh, for the officers who killed Breonna Taylor, Philando yeah. Castile, Alton Sterling. So it's progress that Derek Chauvin was convicted of, of murder and that the three other officers who were uh, involved with Mr. Floyd's death have also been sentenced to prison. And prosecutors are winning these cases because of cell phone and body cam video and because voters are electing prosecutors who pledge to hold these officers accountable. And yet the police continue to kill more than 1,000 people every year. That number has actually gone up since Floyd's murder. And black and brown people still experience violent warrior-like policing as the whole world saw with the officers who tortured and killed Tyree Nichols in Memphis. And so, yes, we need criminal prosecutions, but we also have to impact culture. So the second thing and, and is to create more officers 
who don't have this warrior mentality. Uh, two ways we could do that that are, I think, pretty simple. One I think Jill's going to like a lot. Hire a whole lot more women officers. So talking about data, right? Evidence-based, smart on crime, the data tells us that women officers are much less likely to use violence than men, to use deadly force or any kind of force than men. They're just as effective at making their cases. So in my book, Chocode, I recommend that 50% of officers be women. Uh, Other things that seem to make a difference in terms of uh, the kind of hiring that off, that departments can do. Uh, college-educated officers are, are not as quick on the draw. Uh, officers who are older, uh, 25 and older, are also uh, not as quick on the draw. And, and then the last thing, and I'll say this because it comes up a lot, uh, is to get rid of this legal doctrine that a conservative Supreme Court made up called statutory immunity. And statutory immunity is this uh, idea that that you can't sue me because uh, I'm a, a cop. And, and Republicans have been hung up on qualified immunity. Uh, that's part of the problem with the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, which relaxed some of those standards. And again, it's not in the Constitution. And I think it's un-American. If I'm a truck driver, a doctor, or a lawyer, and I use my job to commit a crime, uh, I could be taken to court. I could be sued by somebody I, I hurt. But but qualified immunity holds police officers above the law. And I think it's a big deal because it's civil rights litigation that's powered racial justice in the United States. And police unions, again, they're fighting qualified immunity because they understand that if officers are held personally liable when they abuse their badge, that 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 could really transform policing. I I just want to say, I think qualified immunity is one of the most important changes that needs to be made that could really have an impact. And I also, I can't help but comment on hiring more women because when I was general counsel of the army, we were in the process of integrating women into the military academies, into basic training, and into eliminating the Women's Army Corps and integrating women into the regular army. And so I was witness to many studies that showed the impact of having more women, which was all very positive. And it's not just that they behave better, but they cause their male colleagues to behave better. So um, that would I, I love that idea. Thank you for saying that, Paul. I think yeah. it's a great one. I think maybe one last question, at least from from me, is you know we often see this disconnect from DC and the public, and I'm wondering if you have any stats or any information on how much does the public now support these type of police reforms that we're talking about, um, and and kind of highlighting that disconnect between what DC lawmakers are talking about and what the public is talking about. Yeah, so it's a great question, and you know, polling on these issues often depends on how you ask the question and how much people know. So, you know, it's not surprising that if you ask folks, do you think the police should be defunded? They say, no. Uh, If you ask the 
public questions like, do you think that officers treat African-Americans the same way that they treat uh, white folks? Uh, people often say no, and that that's not a good thing and that we need to do better. And so then we get into these more complicated issues that get exploited uh, like statutory immunity, like this kind of immunity that police officers have. And again, folks don't know as much about that. And so uh, the polling, I think, isn't as reliable because people are all over the place. But again, what, what I look at is this shift that's happened on the basis of a very important invention and a very important moment in 2005. And what happened in 2005 is that most Americans suddenly had one of these things, not suddenly, but by 2005, uh, most Americans had a smartphone. What does that mean? Uh, that means that now almost anybody is walking around uh, with a video cam. Right. And, and what that allowed black and brown and native people to do is to show the whole world that the things that we've been saying about how some cops treat us were true. And everybody could see it with their own eyes. And I don't think there's any question that that's led to a shift uh, all of those horrifying videos have caused every American of goodwill, which I think includes most Americans, uh, to want us to do better and to understand that that means that we have to think about race in this context. Uh, we have to understand that even though we've had an African-American president, uh, that we still have a long way to go and that policing is one of those areas uh, that we have a, a long way to go. Hey, who's that girl? Who's that lady? <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> That's my husband. <laughs> Home early. <laughs> what a surprise. Sorry about that, um, especially because you were at a very dramatic moment, Paul. Um, yeah. and, and it is, you know, right after the George Floyd murder, uh, the Chicago Network, which I'm a very proud member of, had a series, and this was still COVID, so it was done by Zoom, had a series of small group discussions led by um, a, a, an incredible group of people. And um, the group I was in, the president of the Red Cross here, who happens to be African-American, told a story about coming home to her home with her husband. She lives in a very nice neighborhood, um, Old Town, and they forgot their keys. And so her husband went around to the back door and immediately the police were surrounding him. Luckily, it had a good outcome. An, a white neighbor came out and said, this is his house. He lives here. He's not breaking in. And so there, nothing happened. But the fact that this could happen to high class, high educated people who are great, great people, professional people, puts it in a different context for me. And it, it just has been something that I have been trying to contribute as much as I can to changing this. Um, Laquan McDonald, you didn't mention, but was a horrible episode 
in which he was shot 16 times in the back for no reason. And, you know, a trigger happy, well, and he's in jail. Uh, Derek, uh, uh, no, Jason Van Dyke uh, is in jail. So there's another uh, example of the police being held accountable. But you're right, it's going to take a lot more police accountability. And I don't want to, again, dismiss how good most police are. This is not all police, but it can infect the entire police department. And that's why we need to eliminate qualified immunity, why we need to have rules that will protect all people in America. And, you know, when you mention, you know, the ever-present smartphone, um, I'm wondering what the recording of Donald Trump was made on. Was it just on somebody's, you know, cell phone or was it some professional equipment? Because that's going to take down Donald Trump. Um, I mean, having that released last night by CNN, uh, it's, it's like the Watergate tapes. You can read the transcript and it just doesn't have the same impact as hearing the former president saying what he said. So anyway, and, thank and you, Joe, Paul. How about the, the, the Watergate tapes with better audio? Yes, <laughs> yeah, def- definitely had yeah, better yeah. audio. But this has been a fascinating conversation, yeah. which we could go on for another hour. And I hope you'll come back so that we can continue on this and helping our audience get involved in solving this problem because we need the police and we need them to protect everybody. Well, I guess maybe, Jill, I think that would be a great way to end is what are some ways our audience can get involved? Are there any resources or programs that you run at Georgetown or know of that you think would be worth our audience checking out and, and getting involved in? Sure. So, you know, part of this is just about community wellness. So I think if we think more broadly than just crime, but think about what it is that it takes to make communities whole. And there's really things that everybody can do, whether it's helping kids graduate from high school uh, to working in food banks. Again, I know we're talking about police, but again, the overall issue is ways that communities uh, can thrive. And all of those help communities thrive, which at the end of the day, uh, helps people get along better. In terms of police action specifically and getting involved in the criminal legal system, uh, I know some people get scared when they hear about the movement for Black Lives. It's local, right? So they don't have leaders, and sometimes people complain about that. Uh, their idea is that everybody's a leader. You know, one of their concerns was that in other movements for racial justice, uh, the leaders had always been men. They'd always been uh, heterosexual men, charismatic men. Uh, But when that leader goes away, he gets assassinated, discredited. The movement goes away. So they specifically don't have leaders. They say they're leaderful, not leaderless. But great website. Uh, Look at the movement for Black Lives, Black Lives Matter. That'll uh, direct you to resources in your own community. And again, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to uh, be in favor of defunding the police. There's a whole range of ways that you can get involved uh, to help create equal justice under the law for everybody in this country. Yeah, awesome. Well, Professor Butler, thank you so much for joining us today and talking about this very important issue. Um, I have learned a lot and I'm sure our audience has too. Thank you. 
That was a great episode. Um, and I know as we were recording this on the same day, I don't know if you want to talk about this a little bit, but um, one of the big Supreme Court cases that worried um, both of us is there was the Moore v. Harper case, which concerned the uh, independent state legislature theory. Thankfully, six to three, um, that, that uh, the court rejected it. And uh, it's good news for democracy. But how do you feel, Jill? Well, I I'm breathe a big sigh of relief. But there were three who, you know, and there was actually Kavanaugh and his concurring, but it's still five, you know, and that's all it takes. Five, four is good enough for a victory. Um, But the fact that there are even two who might consider this is scary because depends on who the next justices appointed are. And that just brings back the, you know, whole issue of, what you need to do to make sure that the next justices are appointed by and confirmed by a democratic president and a democratic Congress, because that's the difference between having our rights taken away, uh, losing our democracy, just to be specific. So people understand we're talking about Morvey Harper, which was a North Carolina case uh, that basically was arguing John Eastman's argument that the state even if its constitution said you couldn't gerrymander for racial reasons, couldn't be reviewed by its own state Supreme Court, that it was up to solely the legislature and its viewpoint, and they could do anything they wanted in how they set up federal elections. That's the end of freedom and fair voting. Um, So it, it was a very scary case, and I am very much relieved. There is another case out of, I believe, Ohio, that gives them another shot at this next term. So I'm not completely like Ooh. in a Zen moment yet. I'm yeah. still, yeah. yeah, still worried a little bit about it. And if they do decide in Ohio's favor, then I guess it would happen before the November 2024 election, which is scary. Uh, not necessarily, uh, but I mean, you know, because it, it, the new term starts in 23 and doesn't end till June of 24. Well, I guess you're right. Well, June yeah. of 24. Yeah. It's definitely before the election. Yeah. I, that would be, yeah, that would be terrifying. But I know, I know we have a couple other cases dropping this term on Thursday and Friday, apparently, according to um, some reporters. So we'll see there's a student loan forgiveness program. There's the um, affirmative, affirmative action. action. Yep. So it's uh, fingers crossed that the good news continues. Yeah. Well, we'll have to keep hoping there. We've avoided some real disasters and, So I am hopeful Um, the court can delay, you know, past June 30th. It doesn't often do that. So I think Thursday and Friday, um, the sisters-in-law are planning to spend our whole, yeah, we we think our whole episode will be talking about Murphy Harper and whatever else comes down Thursday and even Friday, assuming it's before we record on Friday. Yeah. Yeah, well, That'll be a stressful week, and hopefully they don't release. I mean, they have 10 more left, so if they release 10 more, that's a lot of uh, reading for you guys. Uh, Yeah, it is a lot of reading, for sure. (laughs) Well, we thank all of uh, our our listeners and watchers for for watching today. Thank you so much. Uh, We hope you uh, enjoyed this episode with Professor Butler out of Georgetown Law School and also an MSNBC um, legal analyst. Uh, We'll be back next week with another episode of iGen Politics, so don't miss that. Uh, In the meantime, you can subscribe to us right here on youtube.com slash politicon or also find us on um 
Jill and my uh, Twitter uh, handle now. We, we stream live there every Tuesday. If you don't watch us there, you can also listen to us wherever you follow your podcast, whether it be Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Uh, we are in your ears as well. Thank you so much for watching or listening. We will see you next week. Mm -hmm.